Hello and welcome. You're listening to Epic Podcast, Emergency Preparedness in Canada. My name is Grayson, and unfortunately, Josh is away today. So instead, on this episode entitled Humans 101, a review of predictable disaster behaviors, I'm joined by Dr. Jean Slick, a former professor of mine, as she reviews eight basic human behaviors that are well documented and common in disaster, and yet continue to surprise us and seem to be absent from many provinces and agencies' planning considerations. We'll also review a few disaster myths and chat about why understanding these myths and behaviors is so important. All this and more on this episode of Epic Podcast, Current, Relevant, Canadian. Hello, my name is Jean Slick. I'm a professor in disaster and emergency management at Royal Roads University. But before that, I worked for the Red Cross for 28 years, so I have both field experience in disaster and emergency management, as well as knowledge about the research that's been done about this field. As a disaster management practitioner, I describe myself as a disaster recovery specialist um, with a specific interest in disaster sheltering. And I think about sheltering as that continuous process from what happens when people are out of their house to when they finally have a new home, which may not no longer be a house. That's kind of my background. Um, as a researcher, I am interested in what I would call emergent response to disaster, um, sort of emergent and convergent response. That's the way it's framed in the literature, which is really around how sit ordinary citizens, what they do when a disaster occurs. And I'm fascinated by that research and I'm trying to contribute to that within the Canadian context because there's not been as much research on that kind of phenomena in Canada. So nothing less than trying to understand the human mind and disaster and, and human behavior. Yeah. Certainly really interesting and what we're here to talk about today. So one of the things that I've noticed over the pandemic is a bit of a resurgence in some of the traditional myths or malpractices or misinformation around human behavior in disaster, what can be expected versus what they actually do. So I'm wondering if you can kind of bring us back to some of the prevalent myths in, uh, around human behavior and then what actually happens in disaster. Sure. A couple of myths. I think one of them um, that I'll start with a more general one is that I think that people often think that when a disaster happens, there's chaos. Um, we see that word used a lot, certainly in the media, but I also hear it in people's language when they talk about that initial period when a disaster occurs, that there's just chaos. And that implies to me that, that well, uh, that there's a, a breakdown in terms of what has traditionally happened in terms of the way that people act, but that, but it's, that it's just random. And in fact, um, decades of research, actually going back to the 1950s, has taught us that, in fact, there are actually patterns in terms of what people are doing when a significant event hits a community. And so I think that's one of the biggest things. And what happens is the media tends to keep sort of perpetuating these myths and perspectives about what's happening in disaster. And as I mentioned, so that word chaos gets used a lot. So I'd say, if anything, I'd like us to stop using the word chaos to describe what happens when a disaster occurs. Certainly, it's not the norm uh, in terms of the experience that we have, but it's not necessarily chaos. Is the term panic uh, the same in your mind as the term chaos in terms of a, a myth about human behavior? I think uh, panic implies a sense of anxiety 
And certainly being anxious is a kind of behavior. And depending on the nature of the threat, uh, we all we may have good reason to be anxious. Again, generally speaking, people don't panic. The research has shown that. You know, there was concern even back sort of in the, you know, when the Cold War era around what would happen if a nuclear event occurred and belief that people might panic. And that actually led to the first studies about human behavior and disasters, because we, without a nuclear event, we can't really study what's happening there. So let's study disasters instead, which is something similar too. And what we found was there is no panic, generally speaking. So that doesn't mean that people are not fleeing from a hazardous situation. So I want to be cautious in that. So it depends on the nature of the hazard and what kind of protective action people need to take. And so I might be feeling panic if I need to do something suddenly. But in general, to describe how people respond in disasters, I would not use the word panic. And in fact, it's quite opposite to that. Interesting. So I suppose it sort of depends on how you define the word panic as a a feeling versus a pattern of behavior. What are the patterns of behavior that we see in disaster, if not chaos and panic? I'm going to say the first one, um, and again, this is based on decades of research, right? So I'm not making this up. Um, This is through continued study. But as I think as I talk about them, that people can think about and recognize these behaviors. So the first one is a helping behavior. So generally, when an event occurs, we think about first responders as the people who are have a formal role in the response going to an event. But what we know is, in fact, that the people who are closest to where um, a hazard impact occurs are the people who are really the, if we put in quotes, first responders, because they are they are there. They're there before anybody else can get there. And the general response of people is to help. So if a tornado goes through a community and the house next door to me is damaged, um, you know, my instinct is to go and help. And so I will go and search and see if somebody is in need. So there's a lot of different ways in which people can help. um, And it will depend depend sort of on the stage of an event as well. So in that example of a tornado, there's that immediate aftermath. But then there's also a later period of time where people are going to want to clean up the debris. And so we commonly see a lot of people working on cleanup as another example. And that's all about trying to um, help with the response effort and help other people who are in the community who've been affected by a disaster. Before we go on to some of the other typical behaviors, the examples you used were more um, natural hazard base, or maybe I could stray and use the term traditional disasters. Mm-hmm. What have you noticed that is different or the same in this prolonged COVID world that we seem to be living in? Well, we've certainly seen very similar behaviors and there was so much of it at the beginning of the pandemic, but it's also continuing. So if you think about going back to the beginning of the pandemic, there were all sorts of initiatives to create uh, different forms of personal protective equipment. We saw examples of people who had access to a 3D printer, you know, taking what they've got. We had um, people designing new kinds of personal protective equipment. We had um, businesses coming forward to, uh, in fact, convert from producing alcohol that we might drink to producing alcohol that could be used as a hand sanitizer. So it's both individuals and groups within the community who use what resources they have. And so that helping behavior is really what resources 
that I do I have and how can I use those resources in this context? Sometimes it's just physical labor, it's my hands. Sometimes it's my knowledge. Uh, and sometimes it's something like a 3D printer. You introduced me to this term caremongering. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Sure. So caremongering is actually a phenomena that emerged in Canada, but it's been recognized around the world and spread around the world a bit. And caremongering is in opposition to fearmongering. So there was a lot of fear in the early stages of the pandemic. And so there was a group in Toronto that formed and the person who started it um, decided to go with caremongering to counter fearmongering. And it was really a group of people coming together and organizing via Facebook in their community to provide uh, mutual aid and assistance to one another. And so one group sprung up and that was shared in the media. And then all of a sudden we had, I think, over 150 groups pop up across Canada um, and, and they popped up within a two-week period. So we had this sort of spontaneous um, emergence of one group, and then it was replicated across the country. And uh, in fact, now some, there are some caremongering groups that have been started in other places in the world um, following the, the initiation of that here. So it's a form of helping where people are just trying to assist one another. I've been doing some research about the nature of what those groups groups um, have been doing during the pandemic. Examples of helping that come from that are in the early stages were things like helping people get groceries. So individuals who did not feel safe about going out, so elderly or immune compromised people needed some assistance. And so you had others who had time available. Uh, sometimes it was walking a dog, sometimes it was picking up groceries or picking up food from a food bank. So we had lots of different examples of the way in which people help one another out. Um, some of those, those behaviors though have continued um, throughout the duration of the pandemic. And so what we're seeing is that people are just now turning to each other in that community for general recommendations. So if I need a repair to my house, now that I'm part of this network um, and they're helping each other out with daily life. Well, that is very encouraging. What are some other ways that people typically behave during disaster? Well, we talked about one earlier, which was being anxious. And so I'll say that is a, a second one. And so certainly the, the nature of a hazard can cause concern. So a flood can cause concern, a tornado can cause concern, a pandemic can cause concern, you know, a plane flying into a building can cause concern. So there's this anxiety that comes up. And so generally people are anxious and curious about the well-being of others. So when you've got an, a, an event where people have been displaced, you know, if you are out of your home and I can't get a hold of you and I'm concerned, it's there, that's the kind of anxiousness that we're talking about. So we've even seen things like Facebook jumping in here because, you know, Facebook's got the market safe. So um, that's addressing this anxiety that people have. So being anxious is also a behavior that we see. Interesting. Um, during the pandemic, there's been anxiousness about how loved ones who are in long-term care are doing um, because we're not able to get in to see them. So that particular hazard will influence the nature of what that anxiousness is about. But usually the anxiousness is related to seeking information about the status of well-being about someone or it could be about a property. If you're a farmer and you're evacuated and you don't know what's happened to your barn or your livestock or your fencing, there could be anxiousness about that. 
I'm struggling a little bit with that one because in my mind, anxiety is a, a feeling or a, a something that happens to you, not necessarily a human behavior, but you, you pointed out some human behaviors that are related to that, the information seeking and, and milling, I guess, and, and comparing notes. What other behaviors are associated with those anxiety drivers? So, well, any of these behaviors are really related to what would be what we would call an unmet need, right? So in being anxious, it's generally related to the behaviors are related to lack of information. So it's about information seeking behaviors. And with that information, generally, that's what's going to calm or quiet us down. Um, even if that news is not good news, it still is news about what has happened. And then we are able to move on and deal with that. That, that uncertainty, the not knowing contributes to that anxiousness. So the, the typical behaviors are information seeking behaviors and people will go at great lengths to do that. And so um, if they're not getting information that they need from officials, then they'll find other ways to get that. And one of the challenges, of course, is that as more information gets out there, we can have misinformation. So getting people information in a timely manner is really critical. Filling the void. What yeah. else do people do? Well, we have in situations where people have had to evacuate or leave. So you've got that, that evacuation behavior, but then you've also got this situation where a lot of people are returning. Now we didn't have that same kind of evacuation behavior or returning behavior in the situation of the pandemic to the degree that we would in a traditional disaster, but we did actually see a significant number of people migrating and moving during the pandemic to either moving home with other family or moving to other jurisdictions. Uh, sometimes the, the moves during the pandemic were related to income loss, but sometimes it was just related to housing security. So that's a very, fairly traditional behavior. It's not there with all disasters, but certainly with some, we, we do see people needing to leave their home. Another common behavior, which again, we've seen during the pandemic, is supporting. And supporting is different than helping. Um, supporting behaviors are where people get together to express thanks to people who were part of the formal response effort. So we see that, you know, when I worked in Manitoba years ago on a flood and the military were there when the military left the town, there were, you know, people sort of lining the streets to thank the military. Or you'll see these signs that are put up when an event occurs saying thank you to, and then naming the groups that that came to assist, you know, whether it's with firefighting or some other form of protection. But we also saw lots of supporting behaviors with the pandemic, both in the early stages and again recently. So in the early stages, it was banging the pots and pans, you know, at seven o'clock each night. It was the emergency services uh, driving up to hospitals with their lights on. There were all sorts of different kinds of creative things that people were doing to express um, support, putting signs in your window, you know, the newspaper put out a heart that you could then place in your window. And so these kind of common acts of solidarity. So not only were people expressing support and thanks, 
they were also doing this together. So it was a collective action. It's interesting you talked about the supporting early on. It seems like that has tapered off a little bit. Is there a certain extent in terms of time frame or load on the on the individuals where supporting behavior starts to taper off usually? Um, I would say traditionally we see supporting behaviors taper off, certainly. I think what's happened in the pandemic, though, we need to consider the waves. So as we've had waves, we've had heightened stress on people who work in hospitals. And then it's in those periods of time when people, it's really an empathetic response. I think in that situation where people are seeing the struggles that people are having who work in hospitals and the continued demand, and then also over time. And so I think we see a resurgence of supporting as the waves have gone on. And as people who work in hospitals talk about the stress, that that prolonged and ongoing stress. How else do people respond? So another way is being curious. And so if you think about a flood, floodwaters going through a city, you know, you'll often hear the emergency management officials saying, please stay back from the floodwater. And the reason they say that is because people are curious. They want to see I was down in California a few years ago and there was a big flood. And sure enough, I went down to take a look. Now I stayed back, but I wanted to see this sort of boiling river that was occurring because it was a different kind of flooding than I am used to seeing. So there's this being curious and that being curious is really often about things that we've not seen before. So if I've not seen a flood, if I've not seen a tornado, if I've not seen a particular hazard before, then I'm naturally curious about it. And so I want to know something about it. You know, if we think about the pandemic, what we see is, you know, in the early stages, so much uncertainty about the pandemic. And so needing information. So being curious about the hazard. And that really uh, led to, again, information-seeking behaviors. Now, the challenge, um, again, is, you know, we can have different kinds of information, some of which can be classified as misinformation. And so there's this proliferation of information that comes in, and then people are trying to make sense of that. And so it's really about that these kinds of events are not day-to-day events, and so they're outside the norm of what we have as our own lived experience. And so there's this innate curiosity that builds up then about something that's new and novel. In fact, our ability to see these other kinds of events Um, and witness them. So sometimes we can't get to the site where a flood is occurring. But with the advent of technology, and in particular our cell phones, um, people are able to take take pictures of what's occurring. And often those pictures are the first, what I would say, eyewitness accounts of an event. And so that's a different kind of behavior. That's a witnessing behavior. But that witnessing behavior that people do where they take a picture and then share it also addresses that being curious needs. So people then go and look at YouTube videos or, you know, Twitter posts of pictures to see what is going on. And people learn from that. They can learn about something that's not an experience that they've had before. It's how we familiarize ourselves with hazards in the world. That's interesting. So it seems like behavior is driven by both the gaps that exist and trying to fill those gaps. It seems like the witnessing behavior is filling the gap of the the curiosity and that information seeking anxiety behavior. Um, It is. And so the witnessing behaviors are something that 
While we've always had people who've been firsthand witnesses to an event, and traditionally we've relied on media to share information, you know, traditional media to provide information about what's going on. But there are some circumstances where media is not present. So if we think about the Indian Ocean tsunami, some of those initial images, the media wasn't there. It's citizen-generated imagery. And so we now sort of have this habit of taking pictures and then posting and sharing that. So technology has certainly changed the way in which we might respond to disasters in a collective way. A lot of the behaviors we have been talking about are very positive and very helpful and and pro-social. How else do people respond? It all can't be optimism and, and roses in a disaster, surely. No. So most of the behaviors, as you've noted, are pro-social, what we call pro-social, which means that people are acting positively, empathetically. They're trying to positively contribute in the world and to helping others who've been impacted by a disaster. There are some anti-social behaviors though. And um, the first one would be exploiting behaviors. You know, when there's a disaster and crisis, some people see a situation for personal gain. We saw that with the pandemic when people were stockpiling and then reselling. So personal protective equipment when it was in short supply um, or hand sanitizer or food. Also jacking up prices. You know, when events occur, some people will keep selling at the same price, but there's a supply and demand and some are going to take opportunity and jack up prices really when it's just to make a profit. It's not because of a supply and demand issue. Um, And so we have those kind of exploitive behaviors. They're not common, but we notice them when they're there. And people usually quickly jump in to highlight them and share and put an end to it because there's a feeling of unfairness. Uh, The pandemic's been an interesting situation because it's brought to light another kind of antisocial behavior, what we would call antisocial behavior, which is protesting. So when people have been gathering to protest against the use of masks or protest about other public health measures that they're not wanting to follow, that that is a form of response and collective response because we see people coming together to do that. Um, We tend to not see that as much with disasters that are related to more traditional natural hazards although we will see it from time to time. And the protest is really, from what from the re- what the research has shown, is the protest is really about either government action or inaction. And it could be either of those. So the go- government has implemented a policy and people are protesting, or the government has not put in a lockdown and people are protesting. You know, you can have it both ways. We see protest behaviors also in other places in the world uh, in terms of disasters. Again, related to government action or inaction or perceptions of that. So while the pandemic is, you know, an unprecedented event, this is not the first time those kinds of behaviors have been seen. So those are the two kinds of behaviors that really stand out as being what we would say antisocial in that they are not, they're not positively contributing in the, in the sense that we think of. What about coming to terms with loss? Is, is that a, a separate behavior? Yeah. So mourning is a behavior, traditional behavior as well. And there are different ways that people will come together to mourn and commemorate. Um, We'll often see monuments. You know, there are monuments for mining disasters, as an example, or where an event has occurred. 
um, where there's been a forest fire, people will do something to erect a statue or to commemorate and honor those who have been killed, injured, or died, or otherwise impacted in an event. Um, we've seen mourning behaviors with the pandemic, particularly with the loss of life and long-term care. I'm going to say in Ontario, there were some situations where you had you know, significant loss of life. And so people would start to put up crosses in a field to signify each of the individuals. Or you can think of other events. So there was the van attack in Toronto. And so people will gather, you know, people will bring flowers to a site or leave messages or post messages or do some kind of artwork. And so those are kind of typical kinds of mourning behaviors that people come together. So if we know the typical reactions or behaviors of people in disaster, what does that mean for our practice in emergency management or as emergency managers? Well, I think in terms of understanding myths, it's to to recognize that, in fact, we're not dealing with chaos, that there is something that we, we do know more about the situation. And those who have lots of field experience will have intuitively their own knowledge about the kind of patterns that they've seen in human behavior. The more that we know about the diversity of behaviors and the traditional behaviors, the more we can plan for that. And what we know is that there will always be this emergent response by citizens. People will always come together to do certain things. We can't always predict the specific way in which that will occur. So the nature of human response is that it's always ad hoc, but at the same time, it's always predictable. So if we know something about the predictable behaviors, we can then think about how to address that. So if we know that there are helping behaviors, as an example, we can figure out how to channel that help. Where is it needed? We can give people guidance about how to help safely, about what they can do or what we'd like them to not do. And we don't always have to manage all of that, but we do need to know about it. And so when people come together, there can be challenges that are created for first responders with people gathering in certain sites. Um, if you're dealing with search and rescue and you, and you really need to have um, trained people to go into a site. So we need to think, know that people are going to come and what else is it that we can have them do? And if we can think about the way we can channel that behavior. Um, but it's also important to just know that, that people respond based on what is a perceived unmet need. And second, the perception of unmet needs can vary. So your perception of an unmet need and my perception of a need can vary. They can be competing needs, right? But as long as I perceive that a need is not being met, I'm going to do something about it. And if you try and block me from helping, I'm likely to try and figure out how to circumvent and get around whatever it is you're blocking me from doing because I'm perceiving that there's a need. So communication becomes really critically important here in terms of, of clarity about what is occurring. And it's also just to recognize that people have an immense you know, amount of skill and talent that can be used. And in some situations, that citizen or what we would traditionally call lay expertise is actually critical knowledge that can help us in a response. We've seen that in um, you know, fires and mudslides, a lot of different events where really skilled and knowledgeable people who know the territory could help in a response and where people who are otherwise responding might not have that knowledge. So, and it's not a long list of behaviors, right? It's fairly simple. And I think that it's, um, we're talking about eight behaviors here. So if we can understand what those eight behaviors are and ensure that we're planning for it, responding to it, and that it's not catching us by surprise. 
Dr. Slick, thank you so much for joining us for this epic podcast. Thank you. And that's all for this episode of Epic Podcast. A big thanks to Dr. Jean Slick for sharing her time and expertise with us on the topic of human behavior. Uh, I think it's fair to say that this is only the tip of the iceberg in terms of behavioral topics that we can explore, so please stay tuned for more. And thanks for listening. Just before you go, I do want to take a moment to thank our sponsors, and this episode is sponsored in part by Pod Power. Uh, with Pod Power, our sponsors are making it possible for us to amplify the voices of Albertans and Alberta podcasters. This episode is helping give Pod Power a shout out to Book Woman. The Book Woman podcast is about editing, publishing, and writing Indigenous stories. Three Métis librarians representing nations from across the homeland aim to inspire Indigenous peoples to share their stories in whatever form they enjoy. Guests include Indigenous storytellers from diverse mediums like podcasting, burlesque, books, comics, social media, films, music, and everything in between. And you can listen and find out more at bookwomanpodcast.ca. That's bookwomanpodcast.ca. This episode is also brought to you by Rumi, who have put together an ad, which I will play now. Hi there, I'm Brendan, a certified home inspector with Rumi. Do you have a problem that needs fixing? Whether it's big or small, inside or outside, let me help you find out what's really going on. You can call me by phone, or we can take a look together over video chat. Visit rumi.ca, that's R-U-M-I dot C-A, and go to Ask a Home Inspector to book your appointment with me today. You've been listening to an Epic Podcast production, a proud partner of the International Association of Emergency Managers Canada and a member of the Alberta Podcast Network. Locally grown, community supported. As always, Epic Podcasts are designed as a supplementary educational tool for the EM professional on the go. The views and opinions explored during this podcast do not necessarily represent the agencies or organizations that we or our guests may belong to. For more information about the show or the people on it, visit our website at epicpodcast.ca or follow us on Twitter at username Epic Podcast. Stay tuned for more on the next episode of Epic Podcast, current, relevant, Canadian.